Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Feminifesto podcast. In this episode, Vaishnavi and I speak to Mary Elizabeth King, a professor of peace and conflict studies at the United Nations affiliated University for Peace, a political scientist and an author of several publications. Dr. King is a graduate of Ohio Wesleyan University and has a doctorate in international politics from Aberystwyth University. She is also a fellow of the Rothermere American Institute. Dr. King received the Jamnalal Bajaj International Award in 2003 and in 2009 she was awarded the El Hebri Peace Education Prize. In May 2011 her alma mater Ohio Wesleyan University awarded her a Doctor of Laws and honorary degree. Hello Dr. Mary King, thank you so much for making time for us to be on Feminifesto today and we're so grateful to be able to feature your story on our podcast. Could you start by telling us a bit about yourself, your growing years, your education, your work, and the journey that has led you into the work that you do today? Uh, you know, it's interesting when I think about my life because it's very, very clear to me, and it becomes clearer the older I become, that I was very deliberately socialized by both my parents and my grandparents, who taught me to become an agent of social change. They wanted me to work in bringing about social justice. And my mother was a nurse by profession, but terribly interested in public health. And uh, she did two master's degrees. She was also an artist, but she was always encouraging me to do something dynamic and uh, to not be afraid of doing what I wanted to do or believed in. My father was the eighth Methodist minister. This is a Protestant Christian uh, pastor, uh, clergy, who was keen that I be able to act, not just think about, or not just believe, but also to take action. And the the older I am, the more I realize that uh, the imperative for my parents was to be able to have my hands on a lever and to do something with my life in a very active way. So uh, when I was a student at Ohio Wesleyan University, where I was an undergraduate, there was an opportunity for some students to travel. Every year, the national YWCA would travel. Uh, And the year before I was a senior, it went to Russia. In my year, it went to Nashville, Atlanta, and Tuskegee. There I met staff from the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. So I actually met people such as the ones that you and Kirthi named in the, your questions. But I, I met uh, leaders in SNCC, as it was called, on that trip before I had even graduated, been graduated from Ohio Wesleyan. Now, what happened is that along the way in that trip, I met Ella Baker, who's one of the most important voices of social history in the United States. Black woman, granddaughter of slaves, who advised both Martin Luther King and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and SNCC. And Miss Baker, after I got back to the college, contacted me and asked if I would fly to North Carolina to be interviewed for a human rights project, human relations project, that a foundation was paying for, a private philanthropic foundation. 
and um, also the professor Howard Zinn, who was then teaching at a black college called Spelman in Atlanta, that he too wanted to interview me. So I called home and said, I'm not coming home. I'm flying to North Carolina to be interviewed by Miss Baker and Professor Zinn, and I'll see you when I get home. <laughs> With the audacity of youth, I'll see you when I get home. Um, so I was invited, I was recruited into the civil rights movement by Ella Baker and Professor Howard Zinn, which is an extraordinary uh, thing that happened, and it's, it's not typical. Um, it was exceptional in my case. Uh, although we do know that in general, people become enlisted in social movements because they know someone. They don't go through the telephone pages to find the address. Uh, they don't go online and think that they're going to be invited in um, for a staff job. There's usually a human connection. And there's fairly good social sciences research now showing that. So those are just a few, few words about my background. Thank you for taking us through your journey, Dr. King. Can you tell us a little bit about your profound learning experiences from being a member of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee? You know, because I worked for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee for four years, I have a thousand stories and uh, episodes, uh, which are too long for our purposes here, but I do want to highlight something that was very important. In 1960, before I was working in the South, there was something called the Southern Student Sit-In Campaigns. These started in 1960, in which students violated purposely through civil disobedience, the policies of restaurants or five and 10 cent store or a, a, you know, a bus station, they would break the policy and sit down at a lunch counter and ask to be served. And they would remain there until they were removed. A sit-in is not a lot of people showing up. It's a lot of people showing up and then remaining when you are asked to leave. And so they would remain. And then eventually, because they were in non-cooperation, which is a Gandhian concept, purposeful, intentional violation of the law or the edict or the executive policy, they would then be arrested and carried off. Now, the student uh, campaigns of the sit-ins began in Greensboro, North Carolina, but by 1961, they had spread to 100 cities across the American South, mostly on the East Coast of the US South. What's really important about this is that each of those campaigns became a prow, like the prow of a boat for a local movement. And so in very little time, as a result of the involvement of students, most of them black, but increasingly joined by white students in the South, they were actually the pivots for bringing direct action into Southern communities. There was no civil rights movement as a movement before that. It was the fact that students organized campaigns 
to conduct civil disobedience against laws and policies of racial segregation. That is what created a sense of movement because you then had newspapers reporting all over the South. It looked as if it were coordinated. People, people thought that there was a connection. In fact, right now we use the word ubiquity in teaching strategy, tactics, and methods. We teach aim for a sense of ubiquity, aim for a sense that it's happening everywhere simultaneously. It was not planned. It happened that way. And it was very fortuitous. The students in Nashville were the best prepared. And they were about 75 in number. They had been testing uh, small demonstrations and uh, nonviolent methods in Nashville against racial segregation. And they had a tutor named James Lawson, who was a Methodist minister, like my father, who had been in India for three years, teaching at the crossroads of India at Hislop College in Nagpur. And while he was there, he had gotten to know many of the people who participated with Gandhi's campaigns. And he traveled out to the sites of the various campaigns, movements, and satyagrahas. And when he returned to the United States in 1957, he was planning for graduate work when he accidentally bumped into Martin Luther King at Oberlin College. Martin Luther King was there to lecture, and Jim Lawson was there because he was beginning to pre prepare for onward graduate education. And what happened is, when Martin Luther King found out that Jim Lawson had been in India for three years teaching, but he had also been learning about the Indian independence struggles and exactly the theories, the practices, the methods, the technique, the processes that had been tested by Gandhi in South Africa and India, Martin Luther King said to him at lunch one day, come south immediately. We don't have anyone like you, meaning we don't have anyone who is knowledgeable about nonviolent action and what happened in India. And so Jim Lawson had been the person in Nashville who worked with the student movement that was hatched there. And it was an extremely beneficial thing. There's a 30 minute film that um, is not profit making that I can send you the details on because it's something that you might even want to, at the end of your podcast, you could show that this is available. And, and included, so remind me of that if that doesn't happen. But I wanna mention a couple of other things. The, the, the civil rights experience for those like me was a great awakening of the fact that individuals can be effective in bringing about social justice. They can also empower themselves and they can learn how important it is for them to do what they believe in and to make a mesh, a link between thought and action. I think that this is one of the most important things that I try to do in my teaching is to understand the need for a congruence, a connection between thought and action. It's not enough to just have beliefs. It's not enough. It's simply inadequate. It will change nothing. The issue is to enact your beliefs. So that is something that I think became very widespread 
the civil rights movement was actually called freedom movement then. Uh, but for most of the people who were involved in the freedom movement, um, they came to learn uh, these truths. I, I, I would call them truths. Um, now, it's, it's, it's interesting that um, there's a great deal of misperception of nonviolent action. People think it's a matter of um, an ideology or um, something that's a principle only, uh, that it's open only to people who believe a certain group of creeds or a certain number of uh, uh, approaches. But in point of fact, movements are built with numbers. And movements are never made up of people who all believe the same thing. Gandhi understood this exquisitely. He wished that everybody had his regimen, but he knew it was impractical and it would not, not work. And so he only wanted people to understand the rules uh, that, that, that he had tested, such as the maintenance of nonviolent discipline. If you react by retaliating, you break the barrier of nonviolent discipline, which has the potential to induce the onlooker to be moved to join the people who are taking the action. So it's really quite important that people understand that this is a complex form of the use of power. It's found throughout history, right from the ancient times, we find it in the study of ancient Rome. We find it in Egypt, ancient Egypt. We find it uh, in many parts of the world. Uh, and it's something that people have used over and over again. And it's at its core is the refusal to cooperate or the refusal to obey and to therefore make it impossible for the ruler or the tyrant or the dictator or the government or whatever to accomplish their ends. Thank you for sharing that, Dr. King. Your learning experiences certainly are eye-opening. You participated in the civil rights movement and also looked at sex and caste as an insight into sexism within the civil rights movement. Could you talk to us a bit about that? We had mounted a challenge to the seating of the all-white Democratic Party from Mississippi at the Democratic National Convention, which was held in Atlantic City in 1964. And we had done enormous preparations, escorting. We had almost 1,500 volunteers working with us in Mississippi. But we escorted local people to the ward and precinct meetings of the Democratic Party, where they, they asked to be admitted. And they were refused in every instance. Um, we then documented all of that and took literally tomes of documentation to the National Convention. We asked to have an alternative delegation seated for an alternative party. This is something that Gandhi figured out as part of the constructive program. The creation of parallel or alternative institutions. You remove yourself from the oppressive power and you create your own manifestation of what it is that you are yearning to create. 
And this is something that's been used all over the world, even if they don't know that Gandhi had incorporated that in his constructive program. It's something that's in use in many, many cultures. So we went to the National Convention, and with all of this immense documentation, even so, the alternative party, the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party that we had created, was rejected from being seated as an alternative to the all-white party. The all-white party had violated the rules of the national party. The Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party had obeyed the rules. It was interracial. It had black and white members. Um, this was very, very devastating for our staff. We had 122 staff for SNCC and the Congress of Racial Equality at work in Mississippi in that year. 1,500 volunteers from all over the country that I mentioned. But what happened at the autumn after that is that we were encouraged by Jim Foreman, who was our executive director, to write position papers, talk about the future. What would you like to see happen in SNCC? So everybody was writing papers and writing memos and distributing them and sharing them. Casey Hayden, as she was then called, she's now called Sandra Kaysen, Sandra Kaysen and I wrote a paper uh, in which we talked about the fact that, um, that within the movement, there needed also to be attention to issues that were of importance to women. We were not talking about status or standing, but there were little, little items of wranglement. Also, we felt that there wasn't the shall we say, the consciousness, the awakening to the fact that women would like to use the same political tools that they were using to organize, to work with the Black Mississippians, would like to use those tools also to organize as women. And in 1964, we wrote one paper. 1965, a year later, we wrote another one. And that was called A Kind of Memo, which would eventually be published by the War Resisters League. And it was published under the title Sex and Caste in April 1966 in Liberation Magazine, the magazine of the War Resisters League. <laughs> so Casey and I mailed that second paper, 1965 paper, published in 66, we sent it to 40 women who were working on peace and freedom across the United States. And what happened is everyone to whom we mailed it called together women and they began talking about it at their coffee, their kitchen table or their, um, you know, their, their living room and uh, discussing it. And um, what happened is that those groups became what were called consciousness raising groups by historians like Sarah Evans and others. Now, um, this, this was a manifestation of something that was going on, which is that the women working in the freedom movement, whether they were local, whether they were black, whether they were white, whether they were volunteers, whether they were staff, were thinking about applying what they had learned from their organizing to the fact that questions of uh, gender are among the deepest issues of the human race. 
And so there for a moment, uh, the women's liberation movement was actually sparked by the sharing of this document and all of the consciousness raising groups that it produced. But there would be many splits and divisions and disagreements and so on and so forth. And so it never actually was concretized into an organization or a group or a particular entity. Um, however, it is very safe to say that women at a certain moment in the mid-1960s, as a byproduct of working to help Southern Blacks in their own pursuit of dignity and justice, learned for themselves how to apply these tools. And that's the strength of that document and why it remains as a hallmark the way that it does. Even though no group came out of it, and we can't point to any particular legislation, but it did build to something that would happen in the 20th century, which is the uh, consolidation of feminism and uh, gender studies, which have many origins and many um, uh, sources of inspiration and many doors that you can come in through. You can come in through literature, through psychology, through culture, through history, you, through politics. Uh, one can come to either feminism or gender studies through many, many portals. And I believe that those are two of the most significant developments of the 20th century. And neither of them are going anywhere. They're going to continue and they're going to develop. I wonder, Dr. King, through all of this work that you've done, uh, did you receive any backlash for highlighting the prevalence of sexism within the civil rights movement? The answer is not really. Um, I, remember, I remember the Julian Bond, with whom I worked on communications and who later became uh, the chair of the uh, National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, which was an organization that W.E.B. Du Bois had founded early in the 20th century. Julian Bond was very affirmatory about a kind of memo. Uh, as was Charlie Cobb, another one of our field secretaries, who became an author and a journalist, went to work for the National Geographic and has written many books, many, many books. So it, maybe some people didn't quite understand it, but we didn't take any backlash. We were not making an argument that we were excluded and we were not making an argument that we didn't have high enough status. This was not a movement about status. Nobody had titles except maybe a state director. There was a state director for some of our states, but that's as close as we got to a title. Otherwise, everybody was staff or a field, secret field secretary. The exception being the press secretary who was Julian Bond. In any social movement, you need someone who is the go-to person for those, particularly in the news media, who would like to make inquiries. Somebody has to be designated as an individual who's knowledgeable about the debates and the discussions and how the decisions are being made, to whom people on the outside can go for an authentic and reliable explanation. It's quite important. So we had very few titles. So there was nothing seeking status or title in our memo. It was, uh, is this movement big enough 
to encompass concerns of women. But the answer wasn't important because women were already taking upon themselves the fact that they were in a gigantic learning curve and they would then go on and use it for the rest of their lives for the most part. Thank you for sharing that. It sounds like a movement that pursued equality as a means and as an ends. As one of the founding activists of the women's liberation movement, from your initial days to now, what are some of your key observations on this movement? Um, well, I, I think that um, there's one issue that we did not anticipate and that I think is even more important now than it was before. And that is the global acceptance on a normative level of violence against women. We were not talking about this at the time of a kind of memo, sex and caste. We were not discussing this at all. It was not being discussed. It's more important now partly because there are more avenues for putting it before the public. And we have things like the Me Too movement and other transnational manifestations of concern about this. But I think it's extremely important. And the fact that I can say in a very strong way that violence against women and its acceptability in the global normative order implies a general standard of acceptability of violence toward women is a byproduct of everything I've done and everything I've learned in my life. And I say that absolutely definitively. It is tragic that we have a situation where crimes and killing of women are not crimes. And this is occurring in many, many cities and counties and states and countries across the world. So the Women's Liberation Movement was, op was opening minds and hearts. It was bringing to the public themes, issues, constraints, um, deficits, but it was really at the beginning stages and it didn't produce a lot of uh, answers at, at, at that time. I would say that um, we're beginning to see a shifting of years now with what's happening in Sweden, uh, which in 2014, five years ago, Sweden became the first country in the world to publicly adopt what it calls a feminist foreign policy. We don't even know what this is going to look like, but there is a foreign minister named Margot Wallström who explained in 2015 that it meant, and I quote, standing against the systematic and global subordination of women. So we have something now that has a properly global, worldwide, universalistic framework because this is the only framework that we should settle for, for. That doesn't mean that we eliminate the local. The local is always unified with the universal. But it's very important that we recognize that there's the beginning of countries beginning to take this serious, that the policy consists of three R's in Sweden, rights, representation, and resources. Now, I don't know whether Sweden is conditioning its foreign assistance on global equity now. Uh, but I think that this is what lies ahead. 
I think that this is where we're going and I think it's where we have to go. I think we have to see countries. I think that this is where we have to go. We, we need to be moving toward a situation in which the perpetuation of violence against women as something that is not considered egregious and criminal must be tackled by the governments of the world. Certainly those that are in the business of assisting other countries. Uh, I think that that's something that lies ahead and it's something that all of us need to be working on. Um, I also think that we need to be raising at every forum, whether honor killings, bride burnings, trafficking in girls and women as enslaved sex workers, female infanticide, we need to be raising everywhere whether this is not justiciable in international tribunals. This is what lies ahead for the future, but it's also in the present. So we can't just talk about it in the future. We've got to talk about it as now and then, later, uh, on a continual basis. It's also high time for us to recognize the phenomenal importance of education of women. And, you know, to, to, I don't know to, to what degree that this has been affected by uh, women's movements, but it's certainly an issue that is compatible with them because the education of girls is probably the most important catalyst for change in any society. I want to tell you a little story. In 1977, which was in the Carter administration, my husband Peter Bourne and I went to have dinner with Robert McNamara. Robert McNamara was a businessman who had been the Department's of Defense head, the Secretary of Defense for both President Kennedy and President Johnson. And he had, in fact, um, been very active in the Vietnam War. Later, he was made head of the World Bank. And it was while he was head of the World Bank that we had dinner with him. And I thought about what I wanted to ask him as we were driving there. And I did ask him the question. I said, Bob, if you could only do one thing as head of the World Bank to make a difference worldwide, what would that one step be? I thought I had asked him a difficult question and I thought that he would sit there and think about it for a minute or two. And he did no such thing. He responded immediately and said, oh, Mary, that's such an easy question. I would put every girl in the world into school. And he said, we have warehouses of studies proving and showing that this would be a demonstrable step, which overnight would change everything. It would change everything having to do with the socialization of children, with the preparation of societies for building dignified um, respect for all people. It would change healthcare. It would change everything that we know in our lives and our world if we could do this. So I think that this is, being able to think about issues like this didn't just start at a certain moment in time. It's been a gathering um, progression. It needs needs to continue to gather and it needs to continue to progress. And we need to continue working together worldwide. And we have more tools to work together today than we did in the past, which is one very good thing. 
we're also able to look back and see things that we couldn't see before. Let me give you one example. There's a historian named Rachel Devlin who has recently, in 2018, published a book um, in which she found that girls were in the vanguard of the struggle for the desegregation of schools as a matter of racial desegregation after the United States Supreme Court ruled that the public schools had to be desegregated. It's now 60 years later after that Supreme Court decision, 1957. And her name, Rachel Devlin, she has come out with a book um, in which she's talking about the fact that all across the American South, where school desegregation took place, it was mostly by girls. For example, in the Little Rock Nine, six of the nine were girls. In New Orleans, all four of the children that desegregated the schools were girls. In Baton Rouge, Louisiana, there were 26 girls and three boys um, who desegregated the high schools. And it took 60 years for this study to come out showing that girls were at the forefront of the desegregation of public schools as a consequence of the Supreme Court. So we not only have to look forward, we also have to look back and look into the past and say, what did we not realize at the time was happening? Thank you so much for sharing some of your key observations on the women's liberation movement. From there, I'd like to go on to another role that you've been engaged with. Since 2002, you've been a professor of peace and conflict studies with the UN-affiliated UPeace, or University for Peace. Can you tell us about your journey in this role? Well, I, let me say this. I give, I give the University for Peace a lot of credit because they brought me in to work on credit and building, on, on gender and building peace. Uh, the rector of the University for Peace, Martin Lees, and Dina Rodriguez brought me in because they understood that the two needed to be linked. And they were right, because historically, it's generally been women who have put societies together after warfare and led the recovery processes. Um, so I give UPS a lot of credit for that. That it's no longer leading in that area has more to do with fundraising and finances because the university takes no money from the United Nations. As, as an affiliate of the United Nations, it cannot take UN funds and also be free to criticize the United Nations. And you can't really study peace if you're not free to criticize the United Nations. So. Um, I would also say that the work on peace building that the University for Peace has done is extremely important because this is a dynamic concept. Butrus Butrus Ghali in 1978 in Namibia, in West Africa, West, not West Africa, but Western Africa, uh, is the one who pointed out that there was a need for preparing societies that had survived conflict for how to build something that he called post-conflict peace building. That's where the term comes from. Uh, I, a lot of work has gone on, a lot of work has been done, a lot is being done, there are a lot of studies underway. But this is an important concept because we know that if nothing changes in a society that has seen acute conflict, if nothing changes, there will be more acute conflict. So 
we have to recognize that post-conflict, there is a moment when there need to be a series of extremely consequential inputs and disciplines brought to bear. And there needs to be the involvement of the civil society, particularly women's groups who are, uh, women are great organizers. They appear from social sciences, literature and studies to care very little about status, but a great deal about results. They work cooperatively and collaboratively together, whereas male models of leadership tend to be more pyramidal, hierarchical. So this was important, the emphasis on peace building. Um, I want to mention a lesson from India in the Panchayat's Raj, because George Matthew, the sociologist who's the founder of India's Institute of Social Sciences, told me, and this is a quote, he said to me, Actually, I invited him to, to the University for Peace. He said it there. This is where I heard him say this. He said, this is India's last chance. He said, um, since evolutionary change has not altered cultural practices and customs that result in severe extreme prejudice and impoverishment for Indian women, the Panchayat's Raj, are our last chance. And it was thanks to the 73rd and 74th Amendments that India implemented this program. It's different everywhere I've been in India. The panchayats are different. But at least there is a framework in at least one third of the seats must be held by women, at least. So there's the possibility of more than one third. But it's recognized that it's not possible to do this without women. And I, I, I credit social scientists in India for that. That's such a beautiful journey. From there, on to your latest book, Gandhian Nonviolent Struggle and Untouchability in South India, the 1924-25 Vaikom Satyagraha and the Mechanisms of Change, dives into caste politics in India and also talks about the nonviolent road to independence. Can you tell us about what motivated you to write this book? It's, it, 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 there's never been anything like this done before because there was a story that went around the world in the mid, uh, middle of the 20th century that in Travancore Princely State, the untouchables had suffered so greatly that eventually the priestly Brahmins were persuaded that their suffering should be no more and embrace them. There is no substantiation for this story whatsoever. It is utterly untrue. I spent 15 years working on this book, many, many trips to India, supported by the United States Institute of Peace, my own institute at Oxford University. Um, and I had other sources of help as well. Most of what I was doing was working in archives in New Delhi and in Kerala where fortunately, palace correspondence from the princely state had been saved, records, even songbooks used in the Satyagraha by people to teach the singing of new songs. Um, when I started work on this, I, my, my hope was modest. Let's at least get a substantiated view, a, a chronology 
that can be proven on what actually happened in this nonviolent struggle. It was also a struggle in which Gandhi made a lot of mistakes. Now, Gandhi's been subjected to criticism for his entire life, and it hasn't, it hasn't subsided since his death. We have a lot that we can learn from his mistakes. He made many mistakes in the struggle. He wasn't there, he was in central India advising. But I became very fascinated. Now, this, I've given you the good reason for why I did the book. But now I'm going to give you the real reason. The real reason is that the most preeminent scholar of nonviolent action in the world, Gene Sharp, pulled me aside one day and said, Mary, there's a struggle that took place in India that I believe everything we think we know about it is untrue. Somebody has got to research this and find out what really happened. That's the real reason that I did this work. <laughs> I took on 15 years of study to produce that book. And finally, on that note then, Dr. King, what advice would you give to aspiring peace activists and educators? Um, are, there are two things that I'm working on right now. One is, in addition to my teaching, in addition to my writing, in addition to my occasional blogging and so on, one is uh, I'm director of the James Lawson Institute, which is named after James Lawson, whom I told you about, who was the agent who transferred so much of the knowledge to Martin Luther King and to the student wing of the civil rights movement. And we have an institute that several times a year is open to students in the United States who are already using nonviolent action, but want to become better at it. We have vast amounts of nonviolent struggle in the United States, and a lot of it makes no impact whatsoever. People turn out in huge demonstrations and nothing changes. Nothing is altered as a consequence of that. We are on a different trajectory. We are trying to make uh, implementation of change the feature and to bring about effectiveness. And unfortunately, it's not open to the world, although we have many people in the United States who have done graduate work in the United States and eventually became citizens of the United States, and they're able to apply. But we can't pay for the travel of people from worldwide because we have to raise all of the money ourselves. But I'm optimistic about that perhaps changing in the future. The other thing that I'm working on, in addition to all of my regular teaching and writing, is a better understanding of what it would take in the United States to have atonement for historical atrocities of race and exclusion. And I'm working on this with a number of uh, groups and people. We're trying to figure out how to amplify, how to expand what's already going on on a small scale. There are efforts for example, there's a major project to surface and examine every single case of lynching that ever occurred in the United States. There are schools that are focusing on this topic. There are museums that are focusing on this topic. There are uh, private philanthropic foundations that are joining together. I'm working now on a conference, a seminar, to bring together a very creative group of people to talk about how do we amplify 
what is going on. Because we know from studies of human nature, studies of theology, studies of psychology, studies of social sciences, we know that people cannot change behavior without it being in a community or, or larger context. People need help in order to alter the way they think and the way they act. We need to do more that's dynamic to engage the institutions of the United States in facing a very sorrowful past and working on how to overcome that. And we have lots of models internationally and one great book called Sorry States by Jennifer Lind, L-I-N-D, which talks a great deal about what Germany has done to overcome its extremely bitter past. So I think this is something that all of us need to think about, is how do we overcome our past? Because without doing that, we can't really go forward into the future. Well, I think that one of the, um, one of the uh, things that I've learned as someone who was born and reared in the United States is that we don't understand our own history. So I would say, to those who are looking at the future and thinking about um, working on peace and being educators, they need to realize that societies have a tendency to valorize, to, to treat with respect and admiration their history of wars. And they have a similar capacity to forget the advances that have been made through nonviolent struggle. So I would say the first and foremost thing is to always have your senses out, like an insect with antennae. Always have your antennae out, thinking about, are there local nonviolent struggles that I should be putting the students to work doing case studies? Should we be making field trips to visit this city which accomplished that? Uh, as a result of nonviolent struggle, to work it in. It doesn't have to be a subject that's approved by the school board or the authorities. Just work it in, just realize that a society that only studies the history of its wars is not going to be a society that can build peace.